No human being is good. God alone is good. Only God achieves the standard of moral goodness. No one but God, Jesus says, has ever met God's standard. There's no one else good by God's measure. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What must a person do to be saved? Hello there, I'm Bill Wright, and today we continue with part three of a four-part series titled The Rich Young Ruler. There's a common teaching within professing evangelical Christianity that says all you need to do to become a Christian is either say a certain prayer, walk an aisle, or maybe check a box in the church bulletin. When Jesus presents the gospel to the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, he says nothing of the sort. Rather, he calls for the young man to forsake his own life, repent of his sins, and trust in him alone. In today's message, Tom will unfold the truth that being a follower of Jesus is not merely about saying certain words or performing specific deeds. It means you have to be willing to give up every idol of your heart in order to believe in Him as Savior and Lord. Let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn again to one of the most remarkable accounts from the life of Christ, the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. We learn so much about the gospel, about our Lord's heart for people, about the difficulty of salvation in this passage. It really is a watershed passage in Mark's gospel. And I think it's specifically placed here to call Mark's readers to take a look at their own commitment to Jesus Christ. Are they willing to turn from everything else and embrace Christ alone? As I look at this passage and I think about what's taught here, I find a clear antithesis between what Mark describes in this passage, what our Lord has to say, and so much of what's a part of American Christianity. In fact, when I think about what we read in Mark 10, my mind goes to the seeker-sensitive movement that's so much a part of, still, of American Christianity. And, of course, the undisputed voice in that community still is Rick Warren. Rick Warren's book, The Purpose-Driven Church, largely remains the standard in American Christianity on how to reach the seekers or the unchurched. Now, let me say that while I totally disagree with the book, it's very likely that Rick Warren is a brother in Christ, and you have to keep both of those things separate. I've read the book a couple of times. I find it interesting that in a 400-page book primarily about helping churches reach seekers with the gospel, there is no explanation of exactly what the gospel is. But Warren does mention his strategy of evangelism and the services that he holds, a couple of quotes stand out to me. I have a large collection of them on my computer, but these two stand out to me because they specifically are addressed by the passage that we're looking at tonight. Warren writes, people crowded around Jesus because he met their needs, physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, and financial, 
He goes on on that same page to say, it is my deep conviction that anybody can be one to Christ if you discover the key to his or her heart. The most likely place to start is with that person's felt needs. That is completely antithetical to what we find in the passage we're examining together. In fact, based on the account we're examining here in Mark's gospel, Jesus could not have been on staff at Saddleback Church. But in Saddleback's defense, he also would have flunked out most of Evangelism 101 courses in most Christian colleges. Because Jesus was more concerned about genuine faith than the number of converts. He absolutely refused to lower the standards, the demands of discipleship, even when he was faced with the best candidate for salvation that he ever encountered in his entire ministry. Jesus didn't fail because he didn't know the keys to this young man's heart. He didn't fail because he didn't understand his felt needs. Specifically, we'll see that Jesus didn't fail at all. He presented the clear demands of the gospel, and it was this young man who failed to respond to those demands. The man we call the rich young ruler. Let me remind you of kind of where we've been in this passage. Let me read for you Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property." And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. The basic proposition that lies behind this passage is this. Salvation is humanly impossible and can only be accomplished by a divine miracle of God's grace. Now, as we've watched this remarkable account unfold, we first met an apparent seeker. Jesus and his disciples are traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover, the last Passover, the Passover at which Jesus will be crucified. In just a few days will come the triumphal entry. They've arrived in the region of Perea, 
probably in the evening after a full day's journey. Apparently, they stayed there in the house of one of Jesus' followers. And the next morning, they get up and prepare to leave the house and continue their journey to Jerusalem. But as they're preparing to leave, some parents brought their children to Jesus. And over the disciples' protestations, Jesus blessed these children. But before Jesus and his disciples can get out of town, they are approached by a man in apparently a desperate situation. Matthew tells us that he was a young man. Luke calls him a ruler. He was probably one of the rulers in the local synagogue there in that town. So here's a man somewhere between puberty and about 30 years of age in Jewish reckoning, who already at that young age has become very influential in his community. Only the leaders of the community were the rulers of the synagogue. It was more like a political position than anything else. And because of his financial wherewithal, because he was wealthy, because he had a genuine heart for spiritual things to a certain extent, he quickly rose to authority and power, and he runs to find Jesus. Look at verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, "'Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?' Matthew says, he said, "'Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life?' This young man wants to know what he can do to ensure that he will be part of the final resurrection into everlasting life. And a parent seeker. That brings us to Jesus' shocking answer. We looked at this last time. Jesus begins by confronting this, this man's flawed view of man and his sinfulness. Verse 18, Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus says, listen, no human being is good. You think I'm a human being, and you're calling me good. No human being is good. God alone is good. Only God achieves the standard of moral goodness. No one but God, Jesus says, has ever met God's standard. There's no one else good by God's measure. Then Jesus corrects his flawed view of salvation. Notice verse 19, you know the commandments, and he lists five of the last six of the Ten Commandments. Essentially, the second law, as it's called, of the, the second table, I should say, of the law. And then Jesus summarizes it all, according to Matthew, by saying, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoting from Leviticus 19.18. What is Jesus doing here? He is underscoring that the moral law of God still serves a purpose for unregenerate men and women. What do I mean by that? Well, by the moral law, I mean the moral requirements that eternally reflect the character of God and are outlined in the Ten Commandments. Those things that never change. It will never be acceptable to have a God in addition to or above the true God. It will never be acceptable to take God's name in vain, and so forth. Now, according to the New Testament, the purposes of that law are three. That law awakens men's consciences to the knowledge of the truth. As Paul says in Romans 3, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. It drives them to Christ. Galatians 3, it becomes a tutor that tells them they need something other than their goodness. They don't measure up and drives them to the need of Christ and grace. 
And it leaves those who refuse to repent without excuse and under the curse of the law. That's Romans 3, 19 and 20. Every mouth stopped when a person stands before God because of the written law, if they have the written law, or the law written on the conscience, Romans 2, they will be without excuse and under the curse of the law. That's the purpose the law serves. In other words, every unbeliever is still under the law. That unbeliever, the unbelievers in your world, in your family, in your life, they can either keep the law perfectly and earn eternal life, which is an impossibility. They can fail to keep it perfectly and be judged and punished for every violation in hell forever. Or they can turn in faith and repentance to Christ, admitting their own inability and clinging solely to what Christ has accomplished. Those are the options. Jesus, then, is graciously forcing this young man to see just how desperately he needs the gospel. Now that brings us to the third part of the story. Let's call it the real barrier to salvation. We're going to get to what really is at the heart of the issue here. I want you to begin by noticing this man's response to Jesus quoting the law. Jesus says, you need to keep the law. He's holding up that standard. He's saying, let me tell you what you need to do if you're going to earn your own way to heaven. Here it is. Verse 20 is his response. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Matthew adds that he says, so what am I lacking? What am I still lacking? Now, there's no indication that this rich young ruler wasn't sincere. In fact, there seems to be every indication that he is sincere. In a moment, we're going to see that Jesus loves him genuinely and compassionately. Jesus never had that same tender reaction to the hypocritical Pharisees. I think this young man truly believed that he had kept them. But what's wrong with that response? Well, first of all, he doesn't have a true understanding of the spiritual nature of the law. He doesn't understand that it's not enough just to keep the outside clean. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, you've been told this, and he interprets the law externally. Let me tell you, it goes much deeper. You've been told that you shouldn't murder. Well, let me tell you, you shouldn't hate, and you shouldn't use hateful words, and those can earn you hell. Because it's a murderous heart that hates. Jesus said, you've heard that you shouldn't commit adultery. But it's not enough to stop with the external act. A man who looks upon a woman to lust after her in his heart has committed adultery with her already in his heart. He has the moral guilt of adultery before God. The law was very demanding. And I can promise you, by God's standard of the law, this young man had not kept it. But he thinks he has, because he doesn't have a true understanding of the law. Nor does he have a true understanding of his own heart. I don't believe for a moment, I think he believes this, but I don't believe for a moment, for example, that this young man truly had never deceived or lied In John 8, Jesus said, all unbelievers do the works of their father, the devil, and that includes lying. So this young man is very confused. He's confused about what the law is. He's confused about his own heart. 
He not only believed Jesus was good, even though he thought he was only a man, and he not only believed that other fallen men could be good by, good, by God's standard, he believed that he was already good that he had almost arrived. I've done all these things. What am I still lacking? By the way, his conscience is at work. Do you see this? Because he still feels, in spite of the fact that he believes he's kept the law externally, he still doesn't sense that he has peace with God. He still doesn't sense that he's actually going to participate in the final resurrection and enjoy eternal life. What am I still lacking? something missing. For all his confidence in his own performance, his conscience still told him that all was not right between him and God. I've done almost everything I need to do, and I've done everything you just told me to do, Jesus. Is there anything else? Clearly, he's disappointed in Jesus' response. He had hoped for something more helpful than what Jesus says. He's already done all those things. He says, from my youth. In other words, he's saying, from my bar mitzvah, from when I came to be a son of the law, when I came to be a man in Jewish culture, I've done these things. You said, did he really believe that? Absolutely. First century Judaism believed you could actually keep the law of God. Two authors in a classic book on first century Judaism write, that a person possessed the ability without exception to fulfill God's commandments was so firmly rooted in the rabbi's teaching that in all seriousness, they spoke of people who had kept the entire Torah from A to Z, or actually more accurately in Hebrew, from Aleph to Tau. They believed it. Think of another person who believed it. You remember Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6? He says, when it came to external conformity to the law, I was what? Blameless. This man's question assumes that his problem is a lack of knowledge. What must I do? What do I still lack? Tell me what it is I need to do so that I can do it. He was in essence saying, my real problem is a lack of knowledge of how to gain eternal life. Because if I knew how, I would do it. And I can do it. The real barrier keeping this man from eternal life is a much greater problem than knowledge. And in Jesus' response, Jesus diagnoses this man's real problem. Look at verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. I love that. Again, as we saw this morning, the heart of Jesus in the Apostle Paul, we see it here. We see it exposed. The Greek word for look implies more than a quick glance. Jesus didn't just glance at the guy. It is rather a settled, piercing gaze of careful examination. Jesus, as it were, was peering into this young man's soul, and he loved him. By the way, the word is agape. He loved him. There are, just as an aside, there are some hyper-Calvinists who say that God doesn't love the non-elect. He loves only the elect. We believe that God loves all men, that he loves the elect with a special love, but he loves all men. They would say, no, God only loves the elect. He doesn't love the non-elect. 
By the way, Calvin himself didn't hold that position. Read what he has to say on John 3.16. And here from the life of Christ is a prime example of Jesus loving an unbeliever. And there's no indication this young man ever came to faith in Christ, and yet the Lord loved him. Look at verse 21 again. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack. (laughs) Don't miss the irony of that statement. Here is a man who had never lacked anything his entire life. Certainly not physically and financially, but even morally, from his perspective, he had never lacked. Jesus says, there's something you lack. One thing you lack. Matthew adds, if you wish to be perfect. Okay, you think you lack one thing? You want to be perfect? Jesus says, here it is. Look at verse 21. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, folks, I can tell you right now, this man would have been shocked at that response because the rabbis had never made such a harsh demand of this wealthy young man. He was taught that he ought to give alms. He ought to give to the poor out of his wealth. And he could do so sounding a trumpet before him like the Pharisees did. According to Alfred Edersheim, the great Jewish scholar, the rabbis taught that it was unlawful to give away all your possessions. The maximum percentage, according to the Talmud, that a Jewish person was allowed to dedicate to the Lord was 20%, one-fifth of their income. The reason for that was they didn't want them to be reduced to poverty and, and then not be able to help others was ostensibly the reason. But here Jesus demands that instead of 20%, this man sell everything and give all the profits to the poor. By the way, in another blow to the hyper-Calvinists, Jesus here extends a genuine gospel invitation to the non-elect, which is something the hyper-Calvinist denies. Now, why does Jesus say this? Why does he say this to this young man? Well, let me tell you what he doesn't mean. Jesus' command does not mean that to become a Christian, you and I must sell our possessions and give them to the poor. There are other wealthy followers of Jesus who are, rep- who are not reprimanded and who are not told to sell everything. A good example would be Joseph of Arimathea, who's, in whose tomb Jesus was buried. We're told he's very wealthy, and there's no censure of him. There's no command to sell everything. There are other examples as well. I gave you several last time from the Old Testament the patriarchs. So Jesus is not saying that. Secondly, Jesus is not saying that poverty is spiritually superior to wealth. You know, today in American Christianity, there is a growing uh, part of what was called the emerging movement or the emerging church. There are ascetics who take a vow of poverty like monks used to do and go live in the inner city with nothing but a few belongings, the shirt on their back, and they minister to the poor, and they think that that is more spiritual. Is that what the Scripture commands people to do? Look at 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is important because, honestly, by the world standards, I mean by the standard of everybody in the world, you look at the 7 billion people on the planet, Every person sitting in this room is wealthy by that standard. 
So what do we do? What should we do? Is Jesus saying we need to sell everything? Notice what Paul tells Timothy to instruct the wealthy people in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 6, 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, here it is, not to be conceited. Don't think that they're, they're the cause of their success. Tell them not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Tell them not to trust their money and their portfolio, but instead put their trust in God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That's what you should teach the rich. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, The Rich Young Ruler. Tom will have part four for you next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.